Ready graphics? Ready theme? I'm Jesse Mullins. And I'm Lauren Milberger. And this is FYI, the Murphy Brown podcast. Semi-childbearing years, as opposed to being 12. This is the gal that Jake thinks is hot. It's like a little old baby man. Broom get inspired in their natural environment. And on today's episode, we'll be talking about season one, episode six, Baby Love. Hey, Jesse. Hey, Lauren. Welcome to our official uh, back to the episode list episode. We are back, baby, in baby love. So oh, look at what you did. So well I done. did kind of set you up, though. I know. We're back, baby. Oh, it's your George Burns. <laughs> hey. So we are talking about episode six of season one. That's Baby Love. It's written by our good friend Corby Siamis and directed by Barnett Kelman, the wonder man of Murphy Brown Direction. Uh, it aired on December 12th, 1988. And it was the day after Murphy's Pony that we discussed back on Christmas. Yeah, which... Uh, for some reason, we didn't realize it aired on a Sunday. Yeah, they did a back-to-back thing, which is very interesting that they did that in their very first season. I f- yeah, but I feel like no. that's what a lot of, at least they used to do, networks would do when they believed in a show, mm-hmm. it was critically acclaimed, but maybe didn't have the audience. That's fair. I Well, and also, I feel like I'm used to people kind of breaking the mold once they've been established, but I guess it makes sense with the holiday and the way that they did it. But the idea that they'd only had four episodes... And they're like, and now we're going to give you back-to-back Murphys. It, it's, that's a very ambitious supplying of an assumed demand, is what I would say. See, for me, it's odd that they aired the Christmas episode and then kept going. I know. I've, I, because we're used to, like, that's when people take a break. It's a mid-season break. But it wasn't even close to Christmas. Nope. The closest episode to Christmas is, like, two episodes away. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I guess maybe they maybe they thought that it would be like a very special episode of Murphy Brown. Yeah. To fact, get, maybe to kick off the season. Maybe it was like a, hey, maybe you're not quite ready for Christmas. We'll get you ready. It reminds me a lot of, do you remember Quantum Leap Week? Oh, do I remember Quantum Leap Week? <laughs> oh, uh, do I? Because the whole point of Quantum Leap Week was to be like, this is a great show. You need to know what it is. Let's show it every day for a week and maybe someone will catch it who wasn't watching it when originally aired i just love that someone said out loud quantum leap week and was like regardless we have to jump on this i have to believe it was just the rhyme scheme that made them be like yes no absolutely and of course quantum leap has a connection to murphy brown because of scott bacula but we'll get on to that later yes we will so there is only one song in this episode it is the title song Baby Love. It's a 1964 song recorded by the american music group you may have heard of the supremes Huh. It was for their second studio album, Where Did Our Love Go? And it was written and produced by Motown's main production team. You may remember them, Holland Dozier Holland. Yeah, no, we say that a lot. So Baby Love topped the Billboard Pop Singles Chart in the U.S. from October 25th, 1964 through November 21st, 1964. It was nominated for the 65 Grammy Award for Best Rhythm and Blues Recording, and it lost to Nancy Wilson's How Glad I Am. It's uh, the Funk Brothers, we love them, did the instrumental track. And it's considered one of the most popular songs in the late 20th century. Fun fact, Barry Gordy wanted the song to sound like the Supreme hits. Where did our love go? Yeah, that was interesting. Mm-hmm. I can totally see that. It does. It's, they found something that works. And I'm yeah. with it. I also realized doing research on all this that the Supremes, some of the songs that we've had, is actually on the Motown labor proper. Oh, interesting. Yeah. All right. So let's go into the episode, let's shall we? do this. Okay. So we start off with... Maybe one of my favorite montages. Oh, it's so good. Um, 
in which they've decided to play Baby Love, as we've mentioned, mm-hmm. with pictures of the cast by their names, That's and then the crew by their names, and baby pictures. I, what I love is that I think I've gotten used to shows or movies doing this, but they'll just do a montage and it's not necessarily always corresponding with the names until it's in the, the mm-hmm. credits. Yeah. And I love the fact that I was watching this and even without the names, I knew who everybody was. That was the interesting part is that we really don't change, do we? No, we do not. It's scary. Um, Pat Corley on the horse? Oh my gosh. I saw it and I was like, I know exactly who that is. Like, in a, in a, I didn't even need his name to pop up. It's like a little old baby man. Little baby man. It was unbelievable. Can we talk about Grant Shots? Because <laughs> he his, still makes that face. I, his face, I squeed out loud. It was wonderful. And I love that Diane's is just her watching the TV. Oh, that's one of my... There's a bunch of Diane's, but yeah, that's my favorite of her in front of the TV. Also, Joe has the same smile still. Yes. His little, oh, and Charles Kimbrough. It's just... They're, it's very charming. And... Robert Pastorelli in the pipe and the hat. He looks perfect. That's exactly what I imagined mm-hmm. him as a child. Uh, Corby is adorable. I mean, Corby. Uh, Russ Woody's picture. <laughs> if anyone doesn't realize, it's the posed picture with the hands. Yes. <laughs> which I just, based on everything that we've heard, heard about, about Russ, Russ. I, I'm sure you just went, that's the one. That's it. That's the one we're going to pick. Uh, Norm uh, looks exactly the same. Yep. Uh, Tom. Candace and Faith, I just, you Aww. see... You see the cheekbones before they even really existed yeah. in those faces. Well, the thing is, I've seen so many pictures of Candace Bergen when she was younger, yes. you know, having been in the public mm-hmm. eye for so long. Uh, Barnett looks exactly the same. Oh. We should post some some pictures of the writers so everyone can yeah. compare it to what we already know. Perhaps ourselves. Keep an eye on Instagram. Yeah. So we open up a Murphy's townhouse, which is strewn with uh, stuffed animals and gifts. And it is the first appearance of Murphy's actual townhouse. And when mm-hmm. I say that, I mean that the set pieces set pieces and i did not realize it until this happened and i had to go back and go am i crazy and watch the openings of certain things mm-hmm. no it's been scaffolding i mean obviously the pilot was very different different couch different mm-hmm. paintings behind her and that happens so it's, it's the pilot yeah she's still been moving in the majority or moving back in in a sense with eldon taking over constantly yeah, I feel like the first time we get to be in her prayer. And like I, like I was saying when we did the pilot, it's like I had a feeling that she kind of wanted to redo everything as sort of a metaphor for her life mm-hmm. as, you know, she's starting over. These are the set pieces that we're used to. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's some really interesting facts about it. So our left, Murphy's right, we have a ginger jar. I love that snake. It's I love the snake. Looking. Yeah, and funny that you say demented. Akanis and the set designer came up with sort of backstory for a lot of the objects. Amazing. Just, just like in a previous episode I talked about picture of Robert Kennedy, mm-hmm. which I had forgotten was actually autographed. And that's the idea that, you know, she worked on the campaign. Yep. So Candace came up with the idea that this was a gift from her mother and that the snake was something that she bought at the airport when she was bored. <laughs> so the art director, Roy Christopher, is not a fan of it. He thinks it looks like a demented child's room. <laughs> I think that's why I love it. Yeah. And the set director is Steve Rostein. And then also you mm. liked what was behind her, the statue of Dante. Oh, I love. Okay. So one of the one of the few clear memories I have of watching this as a child was always noticing the bust of Dante with the Redskins hat on it, which I don't know why that stuck in my mind. Maybe it's because at some point I figured out it was Dante and then my little nerd brain just thought it was so great that she would get force him to be a Redskins fan. 
but I that has always stuck out to me. I love the idea that she's just going to put it wherever it needs to be because she's such an avid fan. I always love the Tiffany lamp. There's a standing mm. Tiffany lamp. I just want a it's Tiffany a, lamp. Apparently, Candace Bergen's favorite object on the set, although it is a knockoff. It's what is it? Murphy would have the forty thousand dollar original. They believe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then what's also interesting is I, I and I didn't realize that I think at the time as a kid is there's a, a Warhol behind her. Oh, definitely. Yep. Which is from the 60s. And so that seems to fit into sort of the theme of Murphy. I definitely. think. Um, but we'll talk more about I have this really good article from Entertainment Weekly from the 90s breaking down all the things in her set. And we'll talk more about those things as we go along. Yeah. Um, so back to the episode, uh, Murphy is wearing this fabulous white draped shirt and loose sort of turquoise. turquoise. It, are they suede pants? They look suede. I would wear this outfit today if I had all of those things. Like she's got the little slip on loafers. She's got the belt. She's got the turquoise pants. It's the return of the belt. Yes. I love that belt. It's it's that same Native American inspired aesthetic in a very modern women can wear pants too kind of outfit and I mm-hmm. love it. Yeah. And she uh, has gotten all these gifts for her friend Lisa, played by the great Jenny O'Hara. Mm-hmm. If anyone is unfamiliar with Jenny, you may know her today as Dot on the Mindy Project. Yes. But she is a uh, television legend, pretty much. She was on My Sister Sam, mm-hmm. hence the connection, because Diane English was the executive producer and showrunner yep. of My Sister Sam. But she's been on Law and Order in ER and Chicago Hope and NYPD Blue and Nick Tuck. Boston Legal, Big Love. She has a big role in Transparent. Mm-hmm. Also, let's talk about the fact that, and per the theme of the episode, she is Murphy's age. The second you see that she's pregnant, it's not a, oh, a young 20-something woman is pregnant. She's clearly an, a mature pregnant woman. And I know we had talked about, was she actually pregnant? She is not pregnant. No, 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 she, no. I like, always thought that she wasn't. Mm-hmm. because the way no, that she walks around, she doesn't seem pregnant. But then when as I was doing more research on Jenny and I saw that she had two kids like around that age, I was like, oh, wait, maybe I just don't know what it's like to be pregnant. Yep. So I just wanted to address that, um, that upon watching again, it is very clear she isn't, mainly because when she grabs her stomach for the kick, she grabs her sternum. Oh, no. They're all feeling like up where her diaphragm is and then eventually where like Murphy works her way down to the actual belly but there is a like we said the movement and so on but it is it is clearly a belly Murphy's friend Lisa is uh concerned that she cleaned out Toys R Us because there's tons of teddy bears but Murphy says no no I got her some books <laughs> she opens up the books and it's cat in the hat make way for ducklings and women who love men too much and then Murphy says if someone had the foresight to give this to you I also love that I appreciate how maternity wear has progressed and was, developed. Yes, it She has. looks like a giant blue beanbag chair. Mm-hmm. And as someone with multiple friends who are currently pregnant, I'm very happy for them that this is not what they are relegated to. Mm-hmm. No, it's very, very 80s. Um, I, I also appreciate, which I've talked about before, that we're meeting a female friend of Murphy's. Mm-hmm. A female friend of Murphy's that she's apparently known for a long time. That she clearly respects as an equal. Yeah. She calls her Murph. She even says, how long have we known each other? You know, I know how you can rag on people. So the fact that I'm, you know, which we'll get to in a second, Mm -hmm. telling you these things means that I must really mean it. Mm -hmm. And we don't really meet any of, like, we hear about a friend of hers because eventually in season four, um, the college daughter, college age daughter of a friend of hers comes to visit. Right. Mm -hmm. 
So I, I always assumed this was like a friend of hers from college, maybe? Uh, the way that they talk and the familiarity and the history that they, they have when they speak and the way that just kind of fills the subtext of everything, it, it implies a lifelong friendship, especially using air quotes, at their age. This doesn't feel like a new friendship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, and I like that. And I think that that's something that is um, really put across through the acting and in through the words. And I think Murphy's lifestyle-wise, where she is now, she doesn't have the time to make new important friendships yeah. that she would put this much time and effort into celebrating their baby. Yeah, like, I mean, it, it would make sense that her, her good friends now are ones she's had who have followed her through her career. I mean, it makes sense that Frank's her best friend because she sees mm-hmm. Frank every day. Exactly. Yeah. So Lisa is telling her that pregnancy is the greatest thing. This, this she got to try. This is the greatest. I love the way that, I'm not sure if it's just the way she's doing it or the way that she has the lines, but there's some really great sort of rhythms mm-hmm. to how Lisa talks. She kind of talks like Frank. Ooh, I didn't think of that. Interesting. She's got to like this uh, feminine good old boy quality that I, it's the same type of energy that she, that Frank uses with Murphy as well. And I think that's why she's comfortable. Uh, and then Murphy says, no, thanks. I wear very expensive shoes and I like to see them. And then she punches the joke by sitting down, which yeah. is really great. And Lisa really presses her. She's like, come on, don't tell me you never thought about it. Murphy says, you know, what kind of mother would she be? She has to take a midnight flight to the sedan at any moment. I love this. She goes, what if they wrote a book about me and I got turned into a movie and Lonnie Anderson played me? It's very scary stuff, Lisa. So I, I just want to touch on Lonnie Anderson. For those who don't know, she's kind of the fantasy bombshell of the era. When she hit, she was on it for Jennifer Marlowe in WKRP in Cincinnati, a sitcom in 78. And the thing I find fascinating about her is because she's used as a punchline, as the kind of anti-Murphy She's basically the worst person to play Murphy in Murphy's eyes. Mm-hmm. The the anti. Didn't you do a lot of TV movies, though, at the time? So here's the deal about Lonnie Anderson that I just want to address. So we, we have these assumptions about people's careers, and we talk about women being taken seriously and so on. Lonnie Anderson was born in Minnesota, uh, grew up in, I think, St. Paul, and she was originally a like dark brunette. Uh, she went to the University of Minnesota. She's actually incredibly smart. Um, she was a runner-up for Miss Minnesota, like on the sly as well, but didn't go blonde until I think her second marriage. Um, she's most famously known for being married to Burt Reynolds and having a kid and having kind of these public relationships. But she eventually went blonde and moved when she moved out to pursue acting. And then because of her looks and her cute little nose and all and her body and everything like that and the blonde bombshell, she started hitting with these kinds of characters. But she wanted to be taken seriously. And so she fought this massive uphill battle and she started doing all these like soap opera mini movies as well under her own production company. This is so fascinating. Right. So I love looking at this archetype. She played Jane Mansfield and she she brought back kind of the love of these like Marilyn Monroe, Jane Mansfield kind of esque people but her goal was to use that to then have a more serious career which actually still is going by the way um, but I love the fact that we forget that similarly to the the Murphy like she was trying to have agency in her own career this underneath is, all of that this is so cool I'm so glad you brought this up I was like wait a second Lonnie Anderson there's got to be more to you so Lisa says to her Murphy how long have we known each other I want you to look me in the eye and tell me you never wanted a baby and Murphy gets really uncomfortable and you can tell that she has definitely thought about it but she doesn't want to admit it and then Eldon comes in and Eldon has saved her and she can use him as a way to not talk about this awkward conversation so she introduces Eldon um, this is Eldon he's working here forever <laughs> Eldon has come up with an idea for her bathroom uh, the mural is going to be presidents with beards <laughs> 
And I was telling Jesse, I was surprised that there weren't as many presidents with beards. So it's a very specific mural. I think it, and it's a more modern convention that we don't want presidents with beards. Yes. Because I think now we're, you know, we want to make sure that they're young and, and virile. It's mostly from like 1767 to about like James Garfield with a full beard. Yeah, not like a mustaches do not count. Yeah, I think they don't. No, El- Eldon is a purist. He well, is. Let's just if know anything, that. Eldon is a purist. No mustaches, only full beards. Who also thinks pregnant women are very attractive. He does, yes. And I noticed something that um, he... Candace does this sort of like Murphy side take that we're mm-hmm. so used to her doing. Yep. And I think they weren't used to her doing it yet because the camera cuts to another camera. Yep. It, it and you miss it. it. Yep. And I and I never noticed that before. And I went, oh, oh, interesting. Yeah, that we're, that rapport and that opinion, like her visual opinion is not yeah. set yet. Where we're so used to also getting a close-up mm-hmm. when she does that kind of stuff. And it's not even a close-up, it's sort of like a, a medium shot. Mm-hmm. And then it cuts away. And I was like, oh. Uh, Please so, tell me you have the quote from this moment, though, from Eldon. Oh, it's not too late for you. Buy yourself a couple of tube tops. Maybe you you'll get lucky. Yeah. And then Lisa laughs. Yep. <laughs> and then grabs her sternum. Yes, because she's felt the baby kick. And Eldon is all in to touch He is. That. He puts his hands up. He's like, my hands are clean. But, but Lisa wants Murphy to feel. And Murphy's like, get away. She, like, hides behind a bear. And Eldon um, feels the baby kick and he goes, she kicks good for a girl. Yeah. I feel like this establishes my thing last time we um, we talked about the Christmas episode that Eldon's a little bit of a misogynist. He is. I mean, he's a he's a man of his time. And and because we love Eldon, we, we forgive the opinion um, because then it's also followed up with him reading the title of Women Who Love Men Too Much must have been written by a chick with a big butt. Yeah. No. This- Bless you, Robert Pastorelli, for being able to sell those lines. <laughs> Finally, Murphy, you know, they get her to like, you know, hold the very non-pregnant stomach. And Lisa looks at the time. Oh, it's time to go. Oh, she's got to go. And so Elton's like, I'll help you. And they're going about their business. And Murphy will not take her hand off the stomach she because she wants. She's attached to that thing. It's a very, it's a, it's a very comical scene. Um, and uh, Murphy, um, Elton's taking her stuff to the car. And then finally, Lisa's like, I have to go. I need my stomach. Get your own. That's my reason. Yeah. Get your own. It was your idea. <laughs> and then finally, Katie. It's the name of the baby, yes. right? Katie. Kicks. And Murphy goes, wow, that was incredible. And then there's really sort of this beautiful moment that I think is kind of chilling mm-hmm. where Lisa says, look, Murphy, I know what you can do to people who rag on you about something. So if I'm willing to risk it, it must be very important. Mm-hmm. Murphy, do not miss this experience or you will regret it until the day you die. It's so, it's such a like drop into real moment. Yeah. That I was not ready for. No. And... Different, and then now I have a different reaction to that as Definitely. A, you know, being older mm-hmm. and in semi-childbearing years as opposed to being 12. Well, I think what you're talking about is exactly a line that's coming a little later when she said, I've mm. always been 23 and I thought I had so much time and suddenly I'm 40. Yeah. Which I think is kind of the theme of it is like I had all this time for the right moment and now I'm worried that I don't. Um, anywho, so continuing on, Murphy thinks about this and then we jump to... An office, let's say. It's a waiting room. Mm-hmm. Murphy enters looking like an Italian woman in mourning. She's got the, like, all black, shades on, black scarf over her head. She has this great memoir. She just, like, stares down a fertility statue. And we find out we're in a cryobank. <laughs> One of my favorite things is at Murphy cracks a joke about, ooh, cryobank, better than having sperm bank on your business cards. And she does this laugh at her own joke that the only thing I could think of was Kermit the Frog. <laughs> 
it's like mouth up and head back kind of laugh and no one's into it. But it's also a great way to, within a joke, mm-hmm. give context. You're, you're not just, you're letting people know where Murphy is in mm-hmm. case they didn't know within a joke. Exactly. It's, it's brilliant. And she in, first introduces herself as Martha Reeves. Oh, I love it. And of course is immediately recognized because she's a famous person. And again, we find out that Murphy can't really go anywhere without being noticed. What's and great though is that she can't remember Murphy's name. And Mary keeps, Brown. And then Murphy finds she says, Murphy Brown, Murphy Brown. Like yeah. her ego takes over and she's just like, okay, I'm going to tell like, you what fine. I am. Yeah. It's mainly for her to stop talking. That too. Because yeah. like, there's, there's a man and a, and a nurse and people standing around and she's like, Murphy Brown. And then she's like, what on earth are you doing here? And Murphy pulls out, which I can't believe she didn't say this to begin with, yeah. is that she's researching a story, which is the best, if you're a journalist and famous for it, you can basically get away with anything. We yeah. see it in, in movies all the time when people are like, oh no, I'm re- researching a story to get into something. And Murphy is dressed in sort of what will become kind of her incognito outfit. So she's asking her questions and it's very clear she's not actually researching a story. Um, we watch a man come out of the office and he's all all set and done with what he was supposed to be there for. And what I like is she kind of walks past him and he turns around. She says, Harvard Law School, never had a cavity. Think about it. And takes off. Also, this actor, I heard his voice and I was like, you do cartoons, Mm -hmm. don't you? He has to. Yeah, he does. I looked him up. Um, He did most of the cartoons in our childhood. Of course he did. Yeah. Of course he did. Which is why they gave him such a one-liner zinger, because he could pull it off. So um, we come to the office and we meet secretary number eight who I like to call the slamming stapler secretary number eight. I call her the loud kindergarten teacher. Well, yes. I also call her the person who was trained in the theater vocal person. Uh, Corby co- referred to her as as the loud secretary. We have to talk about Marianne Muller-Lyle. Yes, we do. Uh, or Mueller-Lyle or something else I'm not pronouncing correctly. I'm sorry, Marianne. I love you. Uh, she, you have all seen her since the 70s. Uh, let's see, when did she... She started in the 70s. Yeah, late... Uh, and the Heartbreak Kid, she was uncredited in 1972. She's been around in everything you have seen forever. I love... Every time I see her, I'm immediately excited for what she's going to do. She has such variety. She is kind of the pinnacle of excellent character acting. Mm-hmm. She's just transformed. What so many people may know her from, actually, is her playing Norma Bates on Passions. From beginning to end. I and what, did not watch Passion. I didn't. I remember watching the first couple episodes when I was a kid and being, I couldn't even follow this story. But she played a character that was clearly modeled after Norman Bates um, in Ridiculous Passions. Uh, what I know her from and why where my brain goes automatically every time I see her is from Third Rock from the Sun, where she played the cafeteria girl woman who hated Dick. It's so connected to another show that... I loved so much. I just have an immediate love of her. And what I love about what she does with this secretary is everything is, hello! Like, she opens everything up. But she's always on this, like, permanent, simpering lean, like a mom or a kindergarten teacher. This is like, how are you? And don't you look good in your new suit? Like, you're slouching again. Shouldn't do that, pretty girl like you. And look how grown up you look in that nice blazer. And just everything is just so simperingly saccharinely maternal and loud she gives up she gives everything away no one has a private moment around this woman and it makes her being loud like a reason she's not just the loud secretary like it's it's Mm -hmm. part of her her personality and what she's saying because again that's why the kindergarten teacher i think really came to me and later when frank comes in she announces frank's entrance from her desk to the elevator like she just (laughs) 
She reminds me almost of the in in her own way the Will Ferrell character on SNL, the man with no vocal voice modulation. Like she just everything is at this one setting. Finally got out of your car, didn't you, Mr. Montana? I love her. Uh, well, I know her. I mean, other than being like Jenny, sort of a, a television legend, mm-hmm. is that she sort of became part of the Bonnie Hunt gang. Yes, she in did. a way. And I I'm a bit. I've always been a big Bonnie Hunt fan. I just like Bonnie Hunt gang and them with all like holsters and stuff strutting around. Yeah, that'd be cool. It is Chicago, you know. <laughs> so they did a show uh, called Grand. I think she guest starred in it. I loved Grand. I haven't seen it in forever. It was 1991, and that's how I discovered Bonnie Hunt. It's kind of a kind of a new soap of the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, apparently, um, they both got along really well. And she was like, "I like you. I'm I'm gonna keep you in mind and hire you one day." And again, she's just an actor in the show. Yeah, just look, yeah. Like, look at and Marianne said she went, "Oh, that's sweet. Yeah, right." <laughs> and then cut to 2000. Bonnie is directing and writing Return to Me, mm-hmm. and she hires her to be in it. And then very shortly after that, in 2002, she ends up being one of the regular casts of Life with Bonnie. I love her. So Miles comes in, as we said, uh, the secretary says, don't you look grown up in your nice blazer? <laughs> and he's so embarrassed and just like that look he gets when he wants to be like older and mature. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, of course, makes him look smaller and younger. But like as an adult, <laughs> as a, he has to say thank you. Yes. Um, and she goes, she just got back from the sperm bank. <laughs> She's just given everything. And the whole bullpen just kind of goes, what, what, what? Jim comes everyone down. It's obviously Murphy is working on a story. I love Jim's immediately snaps to just defend. Defending Murphy, yep, just defend take her. Care yeah, of it. it's all you know. Everyone, don't gossip. Don't you know? That's not my thing. And then everyone does their little sort of huddle, which we've come to know, mm-hmm. or will come to know. And Miles is like, I didn't assign her a story like that. To which Corky goes, Oh, well, no. What I love is she goes, Oh, oh, and you see the the dawning of realization on her, and then she proceeds to give the cold hard facts. And then uh, Jim has this great line, and he goes, Come on now, we're talking about Murphy. This is a woman who once wrote a letter to the airline suggesting that children ride cargo. <laughs> and she says the cold hard facts are Murphy's eggs are getting old. Um, yeah, I know. It's interesting that this is the next episode mm-hmm. after that, after right? After the pony, right? Yeah, yeah. And I, but what I like that it brings up is the, the work concern about the, how this could seriously affect the show. Mm-hmm. And that's what they're all going to focus on worrying about. Yeah, and Jim is worried about the name of the baby pool. Yeah. he I, never wins it. He never, never wins. wins the baby pool. Poor Jim. I feel yeah. like he's seen many a baby pool and it's starting to He's just, done. It's he's hurting done him it. under that beautiful brown suit. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God, the brown suit. I love that suit. I'm not a fan of brown suits, but Jim looks good in brown he suits. Looks good. I'm okay with the brown suits with him. Oh, it's just, I think it's, again, I think it's his generation. He just knows how to wear a... a it's a certain color of brown. Yes. And as we'll learn later, Jim is very... Very specific very about, specific. yeah, he, he has things tailored in Rome yep. or Milan, I think it is. I do believe it is Milan. Yes. He is a man who knows how to dress. It's a warm, chocolatey brown, and I appreciate it. Mm-hmm. I also appreciate that we're, well, I actually don't appreciate because I don't like the style, but I appreciate we're going into cropped blazers for Corky for some reason. She wears episode. a lot of them. I'm not a fan of them. I'm not. It a, becomes her style. I'm not a fan of this one in particular. The green one later, I don't mind as much mm-hmm. because it really does just kind of look like a crop of a, a traditionally fitted blazer. Mm-hmm. So it kind of works. It's very this 90s. This one has, the, has the, the elasticity and kind of the, the ruching at the bottom. It looks almost like it's trying to be like a moto jacket or a more casual jacket in the bottom, but it's still a blazer. It It's not working for me, but I appreciate the efforts. Yeah, I'm not, it's not working for me either. They still, I think, haven't sort of found Corky. No. Yeah. Um, so Corky pushes Miles to talk to Murphy, but Miles is concerned about asking her personal questions because one of my favorite jokes mm-hmm. is coming up. Um, the last time he did 
she told Earl in the mailroom that Miles wanted him, which um, Corky responds, for what? And the best part, the punchline of that, beyond Corky's, for what? She's so intrigued, is Jim's face behind her when she says for what. It's my favorite. It's funny. I was expecting her to get it, to be like, for what? Oh, and the fact Mm -hmm. that she didn't. I love oh, it. Oh, I love it so much. Um, so we cut to Murphy's office, and she's checking off the men in her little black book for various reasons that mm-hmm. they're not good to be a father of her child. One can't dance, for example. And then Frank comes in. He's playing his sax in Georgetown and could use a pal in the audience. Mm-hmm. love that they use the word pal. pal. Murphy's there. Um, she suggests dinner beforehand. She, she found a great place uh, for the best, but Frank interrupts her. Uh, Mushu with lemon sauce. He scooped her again. He found the best food. I love that it's like he scooped her on the the new restaurant. Oh, yeah. I love that they keep bringing back, you know, because the they're like the same jargon. person, yeah. pretty much, you know. Her. Yeah, yeah. And he says, Give it up, Murph. You know, I'm the best. What time should I pick you up? And Murphy realizes that this is the future father of her child. You see the he's perfect dawn on her face, and he looks so creeped out. So, uh, what's great is that uh, Murphy smiles and the audience gets what she's going to say before Frank does. Frank is not ready. Yeah. So she puts her arm around Frank, she gets up, you know, walks him towards the audience, actually, so it's an obvious, like, camera thing. But anyway, and she goes, I'm really glad we're pals. I mean, we have so much in common. We're in the same line of work. We have the same politics. We both got thrown out of Est. Which is a joke, of course, I didn't get when I saw it when I was a teenager. No, I get it now. Get it now. Realizing what they're referencing. Because it's Jesse, what they're referencing. Well, so Est is also known as Earhard Seminars Training, which, it once you know what it is, it makes sense that they were thrown out of this. It, it's an organization. It was founded in 1971. It offered a two-weekend, 60-hour course known officially as the EST Standard Training. It, it aimed to, quote, transform one's ability to experience living so that the situations one had been trying to change or had been putting up with clear up in just the process of life itself. It brought to the forefront the ideas of transformation, personal responsibility, accountability, and possibility. They they had all these seminars. They were very popular. And the more you learn about it, and the more people over time figured out about it, it was basically just a cult. It uh, it was it was accused of mind control uh, because of the way that they would do these things. And I, as I'm reading it, it just seems kind of like a less crazy sounding Scientology in its own special way, uh, which is how it makes sense that Murphy and Frank would have both not made it through 60 hours of this. Basically, they were two weekend-long workshops. And it would be about 200 participants. And it was originally led by the guy who created it and later the people he trained, you know, the people he trusted. And you were confronted one-on-one. And you were you were encouraged to experience your recurrent patterns and problems so that eventually you wouldn't repeat them. The concept of the experience was to to identify the old and burdensome burdensome behaviors, and you would you would follow ground rules like not wear your watches, not talking until called upon. You couldn't talk to your neighbors. You couldn't eat or leave your seats or go to the bathroom except during the breaks that you were allowed. Oh, they totally got kicked out. Oh, of they this. totally got kicked out of this. Like you know <laughs> that they could not handle not commenting to each other about what was happening, and they also. Um, Oh, what was one of the... Oh, that's funny. I thought I figured they got kicked out separately. You think they got kicked out together? 
I wouldn't be surprised. That makes sense. I don't know why I figured. I don't know why I thought it might have been separately. I think I originally thought it was separately, but the, lo- looking at those particular rules, I feel like oh my god, I'm they like may have gone together. Imagining a whole new story in my head now. So sessions would last from nine a.m. to midnight, or even later, with one meal break. So it's that mentality of isolating people and making it so that the only thing that's being said or taken in is that particular truth. And if you're stuck in a place like that and your blood sugar is dropping, as a hypoglycemic, I know what happens when your blood sugar drops. And you you can't get any backup or anything like that. So you have to kind of just, and I hate to say this phrase because of what it means, but you have to drink the Kool-Aid. See, I know it because I'm a big fan of the television show The Americans. Mm-hmm. And Philip, one of the main characters, um, goes with his neighbor to Est. And really enjoys it because he is a, if anyone doesn't watch the show, um, is a Russian spy and can't really be himself. So this was a joke that I know had gone over my head. And then watching it again, I went, oh, my God, she said Est. Also, I realized that um, Frank and Murphy have been friends for 11 years. Interesting. I mean, that would make sense with the, the timeline for us. Murphy needs to ask Frank a favor, a big favor. I want you to father my child. Excuse me? This is a joke, right? And then the sudden realization from Joe Ragabuto that <laughs> so good that Murphy wants to have sex with him. It's everything that they teach you in acting class about like if you have the same sentence over and over again that you should say it differently. Yeah, why are you repeating? Why yourself? are you repeating yourself? You want to have sex with me? You want to have sex with me? Oh my god! You want to have sex with me? I love that he immediately runs away from her and puts the desk between them. Yeah, like it is the just, it most repellent thing he can think of. It's like his sister just asked him to have sex with him. Yes, it is exactly like that's his exactly just what asked happened. Him. And what I love is because they are platonic. There is never a moment, and you know, jumping ahead, there's never a moment, even when they're on top of each other later, that either of them likes it or mm-hmm. has any. There's no sudden like, oh, what if like mate. Maybe in a different life. There's none of that. There was never going to happen. They were never going to want this. And it is. And her reaction is like revolted that he would think that she wants to have sex with him. And that's why she needs to get into the explanation of why. Well, um, uh, jumping out of this for a tiny bit, mm-hmm. that reminds me of something that I, I had to keep getting to mention is that in the pilot, there was a scene where Frank hits on Corky. Uh-huh. And they cut it out. And they were really glad that they did because they didn't want to have that dynamic with any of the women in the office. Yep. Like, that's not what this is about. Yep. And... That is another reason why this is such a rare, which we talked about with Norm, relationship between Murphy and Frank is that it's just about friends. There, mm-hmm. There is no sex at all. And when they try to do it, it's just like revolting. Mm-hmm. So Frank has this sort of amazing monologue, which we talked about. And then Murphy has this really wonderful thing, which we alluded to before, of, you know, she always felt like she was 23. And if she wanted a child, it was her choice. And now her options are sort of disappearing. And she says, I don't want to look back and feel like I missed something, like I made a mistake. Don't you ever think about it? And Frank, who's the same age, says, yes, but it doesn't involve you. Exactly. And I love the quote. This this quote just makes me think of my mother um, when she says, our kid will be well-traveled and smart and funny and a good public speaker. I think it's a good laugh, too. It's so it's so wonderful. I, just, I hear my mother's voice. What Murphy says is just so true. I mean, there there's a difference between making the choice to not have children mm-hmm. and then feeling that the choice is put upon you. Mm-hmm. And that happens also with a lot of women when you who maybe say they don't want to have children, but then something perhaps happens and they're told that they can't, either mm-hmm. for age or other issues. And then it becomes, well, what do you mean I can't? Mm-hmm. Now it's no longer your choice. I mean, as somebody who I, unlike some of my friends, I've never had the I, need, I will be a mother feeling. Same here. I've, I've never had that like... 
I want to be married and have a baby. I don't judge it. I've just, I've been like, I want to, I want to get married. That is definitely something I want. But having a baby has been something that for me, while I think I would love it, I've never felt like I need that as part of the completion of my, my life story. So for me, it would depend on if I was, if I was with the right person that I felt like that's what I wanted to do and so on and so forth. But I can see myself later in life being presented with this with the idea of, well, now it's too late or now it could be too late. And now that you're not, as she said, not 23 for you know decades, will that make me question that? And it's, uh, it's something that I find very relevant and I'm only in my 30s. Well, I mean, to be honest, it's something that I am going through right now mm-hmm. because um, the medication that I'm on for my autoimmune disease, mm-hmm. um, I technically cannot, um, shouldn't have children until I'm in remission, Mm -hmm. but I'm also aging. So that is a current dilemma that I have gone through Mm -hmm. that I, I'm with you. I never felt the, the huge urge to have children. Mm -hmm. Um, I was never that little girl who drew pictures of her wedding dress Mm -hmm. or anything like that. As I got older, I said, well, if I, if I was with someone that I loved, Mm -hmm. it was something that I would definitely, I would consider, but I don't know. I hate to make absolutes, actually, mm-hmm. in general, because I don't know who yes. I'm going to be tomorrow. Exactly. It's kind of why I don't have a head tattoo. <laughs> yeah, I, I still have mine. I just, I, I want to change. I hope that tomorrow I'm a different person. I hope that I've, I've moved. I think in... you can't help but be a different person tomorrow. Yeah. We just, we always, it's, you know, the fork in the road divides every day and how many different, you know, parallel lives are out there that we could have lived, but we didn't. But I think the thing that I find fascinating about this in particular mm-hmm. is that I I had a conversation with my with my boyfriend fairly early in our relationship when we were because we're adults and we wanted to know what we were both here for. And I told him that the conversation of marriage and children, it mattered more to me that it was not a definite no than a yes, I want children. Like I don't know for sure if that's something that I'm going to want or feel I have to do. But I can say that if you say no, absolutely not, that doesn't work for me. This is such a wonderful dialogue within this episode because it's not just the the conversation that, like Corky says, her eggs are getting old. It's that she's a mature woman and she has a fellow mature woman friend who is going through this. So it's not just a she's up against the world and and the facts. She actually sees someone of her status and age and and path in life doing exactly this so suddenly it's not gone it actually could happen Mm -hmm. and i think it's implied that her friend is doing it on her own Mm -hmm. i definitely assume she's literally murphy's future exactly or could be well spoiler murphy doesn't know yet so murphy convinces frank that you know uh, their most enduring relationship is with the sky cap at dulles Uh, he they he needs to have children too because uh he has the perfect jump shot Mm -hmm. That, need, that needs to be passed on. And Frank just doesn't know. He's really overwhelmed, you know? He's this neurotic Frank that we love. He's like a cornered rat, I feel like. Mm-hmm. And Murphy needs to know in two days because that's when she's fertile. Love in this moment before we move on. Yeah. The fact that the thing that makes Frank wilt and start to acquiesce is when she talks about he could pass on his perfect fallaway jump shot. And he says, and you just see him go, it's the way I arch my wrist. You just can't teach that. And like that's the thing that's like, well, I, I can't teach it, but I could give it to someone. That's a great example of um, Joe's delivery is that he, he his sort of take on a lot of Frank's 
lines, I see why he booked the part. Absolutely. It's so different. So speaking of the amazing Joe Ragabuto. Let's speak about Joe. Let's talk about Joe. So those of you who've been following us from the beginning know that when we get to a very specific episode about a co-star, we're going to use that time to talk a little bit about their origin story. So Joe Ragabuto uh, is from New Milford, New Jersey. And I mentioned that because I'm from Jersey. Uh, and we're going to get to a point where he says something in a very Jersey accent. And yes. it made me laugh it's so, so loud. So uh, the part of Frank was very hard to cast. Uh, Barnett Kelman, the director, knew Joe's work and wanted him to come in. Um, they had both been in New York in the theater. He'd always wanted to work with him. It just hadn't happened. And he said it's not that he thought, oh, this guy is Frank. It's just he really wanted him to come in for the role. And it wasn't happening. Then he finally came in. I think they had also offered it to someone else before that who had turned it down. Um, and CBS was not very thrilled with his audition. This is a running theme. Yep. As, as people who audition regularly, it's for people who don't, your audition, one of my favorite examples of this is go watch the documentary Every Little Step. It's about the, the casting and creation of the revival of a chorus line on Broadway. Oh, interesting. It breaks your heart. It's also inspiring. But there's a point where they have people come in and they get their callbacks. And the callbacks are months later. And one of the girls doesn't get the part. And she's outside saying, she's like, I don't. She said they wanted what I did, let's say, eight months ago in a room. And I'm not that person anymore. I had just gone through a breakup. I had done this. I was late that day. Whatever it was. Interesting. What you yeah. bring into your audition, you're still a person. And a lot of times my uh, one of my audition coaches is always like, the first one's for free. Because the first time you go through something, sometimes you just suck at it. and Or who knows? Or there was like a weird introduction or whatever it is. Auditions are such a crapshoot. Or you hear stories of people who who book something really big and they're like, I was so sick. Yep. Or they're like, I thought I was terrible. I remember I had a sinus infection and I had three callbacks. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, so CBS wasn't very thrilled, but they felt because Joe had a track record, he had done a lot of stuff for CBS, which I'll talk about in a second. They trusted them and that they would cast him. Joe was a little unsure, though, because he had had really put a lot of time into pilots that hadn't gone or series that hadn't gone. And that's a lot of love and a lot of time. Yeah, it is. And the concern is to put all that time and love into something and then have it get canceled after a year because he really did love the script. Can we talk a little bit about a lot of people, I think, who are not in the industry don't Mm -hmm. really understand the pilot process. Yeah, let's do that. Because the thing about pilot season is what we in the booths know it. It's there are so many more shows that get greenlit and who get pilot episodes than any of you end up watching. Mm-hmm. And this is this is a, everyone wants to get on pilot because you want to be on the next big thing. You want to have your your foot in. You also could get recast after a pilot episode. You could get fired at the table read. Exactly. Like it is a it's a very scary and exciting time. But there are so many actors that you kind of wonder like how do they come from nothing to this big part in something? And often it's because that studio or that had cast them in so many failed pilots. There's somebody that they love a lot and they've actually gotten a lot of gigs. You just haven't seen those gigs happen. Also, what I think is something to point out, too, if someone is familiar with pilot season now, is that it was very different back then. Absolutely. Now, because of cable and streaming, pilot season is pretty big, but it, mm-hmm. it's it's small. So it's it's from January through about uh, March or so mm-hmm. is when all the auditions happened. Mm-hmm. And then they filmed the pilots in about like April or so. And then you have the upfronts in May. Mm-hmm. Now That's super fast now. It's very fast. <laughs> now, um, things are also a little different, too, because upfronts are really for advertisers. And so now pilots 
what's happened all the time. It's still concentrated during that time for actors. But back then, this would be the only time that you would have pilots. You would have actors mm-hmm. who would just fly out, you know, to L.A. for that. You know, it's it's a very competitive yeah. time. You you temporarily move to L.A. for pilot season and then you move back to wherever you were. Joe wanted assurances from Diane that Frank would be well-rounded. She actually pitched him this episode. Interestingly, another kind of asterisk that another actor we love, Faith Ford, had about her character. Yes, I thought that um, was interesting, yeah. And two of our favorite characters who the actors put so much love into and wanted more out of. Yeah, I don't want this just to be a Mm one-dimensional character. Please, you know, assure me that this is going to happen. And this was all before Joe even auditioned, he said, before he even read the scene for them. He was like, this is what's going to happen. And it makes sense that they had these ideas because also when you pitch the season to the network, you know, you Mm -hmm. also say, well, these are the ideas for the first couple episodes. or Here's what we're going to be doing. Interesting about Frank Fontana is that he's actually named after Tom Fontana. Mm. Um, Those of you who don't know Tom Fontana, he is a writer. He did Homicide Life on the Street and Oz. Um, But the reason is that Diane and Tom went to Buffalo State together and they were besties. Really? Yeah, so... Of course. That actually makes sense. So Frank Fontana is her Tom Fontana. Yeah, that makes complete sense. Yeah. Um, I didn't realize it was that on the nose. It's that on the nose. Bless. Yeah. It's wonderful. Um, what's also interesting is that um, when I first moved to New York, I found out that Diane's first play that she wrote at Buffalo State that mm-hmm. was done actually professionally was at the Performing Arts Library. It's mm. called Wake Me When It's Funny. And so I went to read it. And then when I was done, I flipped it over. And on the back is a note to Tom Fontana. Oh, my gosh. Really? Yeah. Amazing. Um, maybe I should go get it. I bet it's like nothing now. I remember time being like, this is so cool. It's just We like, should find it. Yeah. Um, so Joe, um, his biggest thing at the time is he played a journalist in Missing, which is a great Jack Lemmon movie from 1982. Mm-hmm. Um, the Associates was the big series that had gone critically acclaimed for a year mm-hmm. that sort of left him a little burned. Um, that was from 1979 to 1980. And it's funny because reading all the stuff in the book, CBS is like, oh, he's mostly known as playing the heavy, you know, sort of dramatic work. And it made me think of Lou Grant and Ed Asner, how yeah. they sort of brought him on. But then as I was rereading his IMDb, I was like, no, he did tons of sitcoms, oh, but yeah. they weren't for CBS. Mm-hmm. So that's probably why they didn't see him that way. Yep. He was on Mork and Mindy, he did Night Court, Barney Miller. But what's interesting is people who, if anyone is binging Who's the Boss, mm-hmm. you might know him from this sort of weird random episode called Mona, which was meant to be a backdoor pilot. And they don't do backdoor pilots anymore. And if anyone doesn't know, so a backdoor pilot mm-hmm. would be within a series where you were like, why is like they're in a new place? Why is not our people in this episode? Yeah, why are there? Why are we focusing on these secondary new characters as if they're leads? Yeah, Golden Girls has the original Empty Nest pilot, which is one mm-hmm. of the worst episodes of Golden Girls everybody knows. Gilmore Girls had the um, the episode where when Jess runs away and moves to and goes to Venice Beach yes. to find his dad. That was supposed. I feel to like be that's the last new. sort of era where we had backdoor pilots. Yep, that's one of yeah. the last notable ones, and yeah. where it didn't happen. So this might have been another disappointment too. I mean, it was only one episode, but um, they did this whole thing, and then Catherine. Hellman, who played Mona, was like, I don't want to leave Who's the Boss. <laughs> so that didn't happen. Nope. But cutting to today, um, Joe has is a super talented multicam director, and that's mostly what he been, he's been doing. Yeah. He doesn't really act as much anymore, but he's been doing it a lot more lately, which is great, because he is so talented. And many of you may have seen him on the new season of Curb Your Enthusiasm. Indeed, he just... 
happened. Yeah, I have some really great quotes uh, from my scrapbook. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's funny, I cut off the date. So I, it's TV Guide, either from like 89 or 90. Okay, and you it, know what? I expected more out of Young I'm Lauren I'm sorry, I know. It was the beginning of my scrapbook. It was before I learned how to scrapbook. I really can't believe you cut off dates. I did. And also, um, I remember it was a TV Guide that I like bought through like some like catalog. So mm-hmm. it was an old TV Guide. It was, so it's the beginning of my huh. scrapbook, but it's like from... Not from like okay. the time, yeah. The article is called "To Be Perfectly Frank: Playing Murphy's Second Banana Is His Dream Job." <laughs> nice titles, TV Guide. Uh-huh. There's some great quotes. Frank is a character I've never played before. He's neurotic as all hell, but he's a good reporter, and he has a terrific and honest relationship with Murphy. Mm-hmm. I love that. And then he was asked if they'd ever like get together romantically, and he said they're so alike they'd kill each other. Yes. So that's. That's lovely Joe. We love Joe. We love Joe. Speaking of Frank, we fast forward to the FYI offices the next day. And Murphy's in a now a tan blazer with a with a shirt tucked in and a and a pencil skirt. This is very like what we see her yes. in. Yeah, this we're getting towards her style now. This feels good. So unfortunately, Murphy makes a comment about how she's looking for Frank within earshot of screaming secretary. And she proceeds to yell out that he's just sitting in his car. He's just, she saw him out there. He's just sitting. She keeps emphasizing that he's just sitting there. And Murphy, of course, knows what that means. And then, oh, the fertility clinic called. They can take your partner tomorrow if you have one yet. Oh, the, that's the way she says it. it is. Oh, the fertility clinic called. And it's just like, if a, you have one. If you have one yet. And, of course, everyone in the place just stops and is listening but trying not to listen. And I I just wrote, only a theater gal can project like that. And (laughs) then we have the entrance of Carl in the office, which is a new thing for us. He's in his green hat. I love that they gave him like sort of a a handheld camera as if like he's there because he's going to meet a reporter. He's he's going to go on a field piece. Yep. That was a good piece of little piece of prop. Good prop work, everybody. Uh, Corky's in the green short blazer we talked about. And I love Carl is like, how are we supposed to concentrate on our jobs if those two are having sex and babies. And I love he's acting like he's very concerned about the integrity of no. the work. He doesn't want anyone to love Murphy but him. Exactly. Which we then find out because as she walks past, he goes, Carl proclaims himself as a modern thinking guy, assuring her that these things take time and stamina is my middle name. He like hits his chest. Yeah. He's a man. And as she's processing that implication, then the secretary yells out, finally got out of your car, huh, Mr. Fontana? She's all proud of him for getting up, bucking up. And you see Carl pass Frank, who just looks wilted as he's coming out of the elevator. Carl's going into the elevator and just, he does this once over of him and lingers on the pelvis, which I love. And Frank is confused. He goes, Carl? And then you say, Frank. And then he takes off and he's just like, oh, he's sizing up his competition. It's so interesting also because, which we know, and we'll talk about more when Mm -hmm. we get to set it free, is that... In the context of them filming this, mm-hmm. he's already expressed his love for Murphy. Yeah. But the audience doesn't really know that yet. Even though you get that in the context of him saying, I'd like to be the father of your child. Yes, and his just being kind of territorial yeah. about that. Yeah. Y- you could write that off as just like, oh, boys, you know, like, whatever. But yeah, we don't know. And set me free, spoiler, Carl for pre- professes his love for Murphy. Yeah. And that was filmed first, before this. So this is being acted. But what I like is that it actually creates these na- this natural subtext without, we find out we no, actually didn't totally need get it. it. You didn't need to know that. But, but I love that it gave the actor that information to then be playing this through line, which then establishes a, a longer through line. But so Frank takes her into the office and everybody looks at each other knowingly and stressed out. Is, is this going to happen? And 
he starts ranting to her in this wonderful Frank neurotic speech about how he can't stop seeing babies and how he he saw you know a son and his father and he wouldn't have noticed that two days ago and then so he's trying to imagine the cons like the things that could go wrong like melted crayons on the dashboard and all these things and every time he thinks about them he starts smiling his voice like goes up an octave yep. he's like lollipops in my chest hair and oh, I'm smiling I'm smiling and he can't, and he's so angry that this these yeah. things are charming him now and I I wrote in all caps Frank is finally neurotic that makes me so happy no this 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 is, this is great about this episode is that we finally get Frank. This yep. is the Frank that we know. This is what Joe is great at and they play to his strengths. Yep, they found it and you can tell they're just like, let's do this. And then he proceeds to say, he's in. He wants this. This is the right thing. But he can't stop thinking about them and little Marie if it's a girl or Anthony if it's a boy. And we see Murphy kind of pause. We'll She's talk. Like, we'll talk about that. I also love that she goes, Frank, this is so great. Yeah, Like her voice also gets really high. So she explains the process that he's going to go in and do his thing and then she will go in and do her thing and or have the thing done and he has this quote about all those Saturdays with Mr. Wizard he never covered this for reference although I feel like many people listening to this do know what that is uh, he's referencing watch Mr. Wizard which is basically like 1950s early 60s Bill Nye that's, that's a good way to explain it that's what the show yeah. was it was, a, it, is, it was a show for children that demonstrates the science behind ordinary things See, when I was growing up, he was on a Nickelodeon show. Well, there was Mr. Wizard's World. Yes. This was which on. was the follow-up, and that started in 1983. And I didn't know that until when I got to watch um, these shows in reruns, and they mentioned Mr. Wizard, mm-hmm. and I went, oh, he's been around longer than I thought. It, he's Bill Nye. Bill Nye is back for us now. I, I love that that's happening. And so it was uh, Don Herbert played the title character. It was a weekly Saturday morning, half-hour live television show. Wait, his name wasn't Mr. Wizard? Yes, it was, Lauren. For you, his name was Mr. Don Herbert Wizard. Okay, all right. I'm okay now. All right, thanks. You're welcome. And it, it's amazing. It, it moved from Chicago to New York in 1955. It, uh, it, let me see. It, by the time it was canceled, it had produced 547 live broadcasts. That's insane. It uh, won a 1953 Peabody Award. It was cited by the National Science Foundation and the American Chemical Society. It's It was a huge deal. They, uh, they even made one in uh, Canada. It was a Canadian-produced revival called Mr. Wizard. And, and then in 1983 to 1990, Mr. Wizard's World was on Nickelodeon, which I think is just wonderful. And it, and it, it creates the common backstory of they are, they are people who were children in the world we live in at this time. It, it gives you their generation, which I love. Then we ch- then we fast forward to Phil's. Murphy walks into Phil's, asks him how his kids are. And he says, not in the hospital, not in jail. Have to say they're doing fine. Apparently, I kept thinking of my mother in this episode because it reminded me of my mom once saying that in my small town in rural Minnesota, um, that she had three daughters who went through my rural high school, who graduated, didn't get pregnant, and didn't get arrested. And she was like, I think I did good. Also, close the door joke, still here. Don't know why I thought I it that. got away by now. It's still here. I told I th- you. I bet, it's in the the whole, door. I bet it's in the whole season. And I think it's just because I watched season one and half later, of two yeah. so much later that I thought it was like just a small joke. It, or, is, it is established in this season. Very much so. I, and I love Phil says, how many times can you re- read someone Horton hears a who and still respect yourself? He is a very, he's a very practical relationship with fatherhood. He's got a lot of kids. He does have I a lot of kids. I forget how many kids he has, but there's a lot. They're all named Phil. All named Phil, because Phil does Phil. And now we get to one of my favorite scenes in the yes. whole thing. So Frank comes in, close the door, and 
we we posted on our our Instagram our a picture from this moment as they're both sitting down and they the way I described it is they're both in trench coats and they're sitting down and they're they're just stiff as can be very uncomfortable and what I love about the trench coat is the first thing that it all the way buttoned up makes me think of is flashers and I feel like they're acting as if they are trying to hide the the vulnerability of flashing. Like, they feel so vulnerable that they are completely buttoned up, like they're hiding their nudity. It just cracks me up that in this show, mostly Murphy, but obviously here now, is wearing a trench coat means that you're incognito. Yes. We pay attention if you wear something like that. <laughs> you look like a character who's trying to be incognito. Yeah. So he then tells her, she asked how it went, and clearly didn't go as expected, and he, we find out he has decreased motility. Frank is just so, like, embarrassed. He's like, this happens to a lot of men. It's probably temporary because I've been traveling a lot. And then he goes, why don't you take out an ad? Because she keeps asking him to repeat himself. And that's the Jer- the Jersey thing. He's yeah. like, why don't you take out an ad? Yeah, it's the, so... The, the, uh, the, oh, I was like, you are so from Jersey, Joe Hagabuto. I love you. Jersey man. And my probably one of my favorite sets of quotes is when he's trying to explain her, he says... Sperms are swimmers, Murphy, and I don't have a Mark Spitz in the bunch. I love that. And I also love sperm get inspired in their their natural natural environment. environment. (laughs) (laughs) The way that Joe says it. Well, so for for context, before we get to the quote, is that they're saying he doesn't have the swimmers because Mark Spitz is a, you know, seven-time Olympian, Mm -hmm. um, I believe. And, or seven medal. There's a seven and he's an Olympic He's won a lot. Great. He's won a lot. And they said that they can either wait a few months or wait a month and check again, you know, or they can do it the natural way because, and he, the, you can see it's his his sheepish yeah. attempt to to reason the thing he really doesn't want. He says, proceed the regular way. The regular way. <laughs> like he can't even say it to her. No, and because sperm get inspired in their natural environment. I mean, you can tell it's just, he's just trying to say, like, it's, a, it's what someone said to him. He's not into it. He's not inspired. But... That's apparently what it is. And they they try to decide if this is something that they, do they want it this badly now that the door has been open about them wanting to do this together? Do they want it that badly? They're finally coming to terms with it. And they say, and Murphy's saying, well, at least no one but us knows about this. And that's when Phil walks up and ends this particular scene with, well, if it isn't Secretariat. Yeah. Who um, I realized, um, I knew, I knew, uh, he was a big, stu- big stud. Oh, big stud. Big stud. It's a horse. Secretary did his horse. I also do love that Murphy is finally like, we cannot name our child Little Anthony. <laughs> and I remember when I heard that, I thought, oh, Little Anthony must be like a, a, a musical artist. Like I, I knew in context, like yeah, at the time, yeah. even though I didn't know. And so it's Little he, Anthony and the Imperials is what yeah. it is. He keeps saying Little, and taking Little Anthony to the ball game. It's like, we cannot name our child Little Anthony. <laughs> And then also you miss it, like, Murphy is like, I already bought her first pair of Italian shoes yes. with rhinestones. No, it was um, first pair of Italian shoe, Italian leather shoes and little socks with rhinestones. Oh, socks with rhinestones, yeah. They're like bobby socks that are studded. Yeah. I love it. So then uh, we cut to, well, first of all, they can't go to Frank's because he hasn't made his bed. And he's like, oh, God, I said bed. Because <laughs> they just can't think about the real no, thing. No, no, no. So they arrive at Murphy's house. They're in, like, you know, knockabout clothes. They're, like, you know, all casual, which we rarely see them as. Dude, they're in their casual wear super casual when i i like they didn't want to dress up to, in case she's in a ponytail and jeans and a, the first thing i thought of was this is the gal that jake thinks is hot ah! like this is the gal that when he says when you wear a sweatshirt like this is she the woman great. he is in love with 
Oh, Jake. Also, to your credit, you brought this up, and um, I know we know what it is now, so I thought we'd give you the chance to address it, is I can't unsee the green thing that's on the back of the couch and moves around the room all series now. Yes. So having, um, unfortunately, obsessively watched the show, there's always some sort of folded green thing, and it's actually bigger in this episode. Mm-hmm. And I realized when we found out what it was, I was like, oh, it totally is. Also, watching on my computer, as I've mentioned, you notice things a little bit closer than when you're watching on a TV. Mm-hmm. There was always sort of this green thing like draped over, but it was like, folded that to the, look like like a hand towel or something. And so I thought it was like a green towel or something and then it would always show up and I never knew what it was. So I asked Corby, like, it just bugs me. Like, what is it? She's like, I don't know. So um, she did some research for us. Because Corby remembers and everything and if she doesn't remember everything, she knows someone who, who does. does. Yes. So it's a throw. And what's interesting is that Watching Baby Love, I see that it's much bigger, and I see, of course, it's a throw. But, but it's it, not, it's folded up more in other episodes. Yeah, it's literally folded up into like sort of a um, rectangle. Mm-hmm. And so it looked like these hand towels that my mother had. Well, and the thing you had said to me when you brought it up, which is now why I can't not see it, is that your your head can have been that it was a like a painter's drop cloth or towel that Ellen no, Cor- had left around. Corby had thought that. What I had thought oh, that... I thought that was yours. No. What I had thought that maybe like it was something to not damage the couch. Like if, if people were going to be leaning on something. I don't know. Like it was in random places. Like who puts a throw over the arm as a tiny rectangle? Someone who's not using it yet who then will, you know, throw it out to mm-hmm. its full size when you do. I- it makes sense because it matches yeah. the color in the, in the foyer. But yeah, so mystery solved. Mystery yeah. solved. Uh, so um, they awkwardly are talking about uh, Frank had roast beef. It's so uncomfortable. So uncomfortable. Horseradish on the side seems to be a thing that they know is a good thing. I, I, I not hate horseradish. Me too. So I love that they're talking about his sandwich in the most awkward way, and they're both on. I, they're not on either side of the short. It's that part of the couch but on the ends of the couch. They don't want to be near each other Anywhere at all. This is totally other. awkward. Their physical language in this is. It's hysterical. so well done. So they decide that they're going to do it. Um, and this is in the couch and it's awkward and they try to kiss. <laughs> um, but Murphy keeps stopping him to ask about, you know, what religion that they should raise the child in. What are the thoughts on Nietzsche? Mm-hmm. Um, should they hyphenate their name? You know, religion. What does he say? He goes, oh, Nietzsche. Now I'm hot. <laughs> now I'm hot. <laughs> uh, Frank thinks that she's chickening out. She says she's not chickening out. And she does this thing where she just sort of lies Flops limp. on her back. Very limp. He goes, okay, let's do it. <laughs> it's, it's okay, let's go. And then she flops like a dead fish. It's the, yeah. I love love the way that it's just the least graceful, attractive move yeah. possible. Uh, so he tries to kiss her. They hurt each other. She pecks at him like a chicken. Yeah, she, she can't relax her lips. <laughs> uh, and also you can see like Frank is like trying not to like push his pelvis anywhere yes. near her. They're trying to, like, and they're doing the thing where they're they're kissing like children do when they think this is how you're supposed to kiss, where they're just like smashing their face on each other and then moving around a lot like it's supposed to be hot now, and they're just going to force it to happen. And then they kind of kiss, and he kind of does this awkward like hug thing, and he's like, that was nice. Like he's trying to pretend yeah. like it's like, that was nice. That wasn't the worst. Yeah. And then he literally, which is my favorite part of the scene, crawls over her yes. and jumps off the couch. Like, like leaves her like sprawled as he's He's so repulsed her. by the whole thing. And then he, he, he has a great idea. It's like, they should turn off all the lights. <laughs> Put on really loud music. Sometimes that helps him. It helps him. I always thought I always thought that, it, that, that this is the point where he should say, could you put a bag over your head? I like when he asks, do you have anything with black lace? I think that would help me. Yeah. 
He's so trying to help, you know. He's like, oh, maybe I just like I just need something. And Murphy kind of like you know huddles in the, uh, her hand on her head like a child, mm-hmm. like in the corner, like this is not going to work. Don't hate me, Frank. And you know what she's going to mm-hmm. say. And this is actually also one of my favorite jokes because I get it now more as an adult. Mm-hmm. Well, I definitely didn't get it as a child. He goes, I'm ready. And then he pauses. I mean, not the second. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a subtle joke mm-hmm. that definitely a child would not get. No. Nope. And oh, I just love it now so much. It's so, it like makes your brain just like imagine like. Well, and what it leads into is this moment. And you know, like you and I were talking about how we haven't really fantasized. We weren't kids who like dreamed up our wedding dress. Mm-hmm. But Murphy has a wedding fantasy. Yeah, she talks uh, about it, and it even has a harpist. <laughs> I love that she's like, "It's not me. It's not going to happen." But this is my fantasy, and it, and again, it's another moment to show that like Murphy is a little bit feminine, and mm-hmm. and I, I think also femininity can show itself in so many different ways. And I, I listening to some of the episodes, I was like, "I hope I've clarified that." Say, being these certain things doesn't mean that you have to do these things to be feminine. Well, I, I th- yeah, I think it's important that we that we do clarify that because the thing that's that matters to us about this that's something that bugs us later when the um she gets I hate to say the term masculine, but they kind of take away some of those feminine qualities mm-hmm. is because what we love about this character is that she has the combination of all of it that you see a tomboy in her and you see a a feminine woman in her and you see the the variety that is possible. It's the layers. It's Mm -hmm. that you can like football Mm -hmm. and then also like lip lip gloss maybe. You can also not like lip gloss and love football and then, you know, maybe like horses when you were 12. You can can fantasize about your wedding and not not be considered a a stereotypical or weaker form of of a woman. Like mm-hmm. it's it's okay to have all of these things and I think that's what I I love is being like, "Oh, see, this is the type of person who wouldn't admit that she has a wedding fantasy that is that is froofy and has a harp and all of these things, but it's okay." And I think the important part of that whole thing is she goes in at the end of the aisle is this great guy. Mm. And who's and, perfect who's for her. Per- yeah, and she says if she just waits a little longer, she can have a child with a man that she loves. And in this episode is such a precursor to the rest of the series. Yep, it really is. It's it, that the moment and the way Candace portrays it is so vulnerable and honest, and it's and it's the only it's the type of admission that you would only get with Frank. Yeah, and then I love the fact too that when she says with a man that I love, and he's like, "Great, thanks." <laughs> like I love you too. Yeah, and she's you know, like, you know what I mean. Yeah, and. Uh, and then, you know, she, she convinces Frank, you know, that he's a little relieved and it's probably for the best. And, and then Frank's like, yeah, you know, men can have babies into their 50s, sometimes 60s. in their 60s even. And she's like, shut up, Frank. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then she goes, you're great. Mm-hmm. And he goes, you'll never know. <laughs> I love that so much. It is. It reminds me of so many of my friendships with my, with my guy friends mm-hmm. and just a... There's no, there's no insecurity or sensitivity around each other's sexuality. There's no, it's a, I want this fulfillment for you just as much as you want it. And just as much as I want that for you, I don't want it from me. Like, it's it's so, it's their true platonic friends. And that's not compromised. It's just so beautiful. And then um, they promise that it never leaves this room. Mm -hmm. I'm sure Phil probably knows about it. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. But uh, it'll never leave this room. And then... Um, and then they uh, they high five. 
like at the end of a game. Uh, and then we have the end credits with the cutest picture of Diane and Joel. It's so cute. I I love that the end shot is Murphy, Murphy staring at the fertility statue. Oh, yes. <laughs> it's, it's so, um, so this is a really great episode. And in a way, they sort of set up something that they didn't realize that they were setting up which is interesting. And also, um, I've heard talked about this episode, and actually, I think yeah, Corby mentioned that when we talked to her, is that this is the kind of episode that you would do later on in the season. You wouldn't do Absolutely. it in season one. But they decided, why should we... We may not be on in season two. Why should we keep any ideas? Why hold back? Yeah, and sometimes when I write, I think about that. Yeah, why, why hold back? Because of that, your show could get canceled at any time. So why hold out to do the thing that you're burning to write that you that you believe is is important or dynamic why wait for the thing that might not happen yeah. that might be the thing that gets you the rest of the series yeah taking a chance something that i think mm-hmm. murphy brown you know definitely did so that's baby love that is baby love and we oh, we didn't mention the dartboard isn't it it's speed limit 55 Oh yeah. If you are not following us on social media, what is wrong with you? What are you what are you doing? What are you how doing do you with even your life? Know about our episodes at this point. I know seriously, I don't know how anyone does. I engage with us. Please. Follow us on social media. We are Murphy Brown Pod on the Instagram, on the Twitter, and the Facebook. Indeed. And our website is murphybrownpod.com. Where you can get show notes, um, pictures, things we might add, links, you know extra little tidbits on what we talk about as well as all of our episodes you can link- also see what we look like because we both oh, that's have a right. picture on there we do we have a face we have faces uh, you can also get a link to our Spotify playlist the Murphy Brown Empowerment Playlist have a little dance party to the playlist before you listen to our episode we do please do um, in fact the song for the next episode Set Me Free which will be in a week because now we're weekly yeah we are yes The Way You Do The Thing You Do by The Temptations and you keep me hanging on by the Supremes. You can also leave us a short voicemail if you would like. We would love to eventually um, put little clips of people saying what Murphy Brown meant to them. Exactly. About uh, like, you know, a one to two minute yeah. voicemail just so that we, we feel like we don't want to, we don't want to cut your words. Yeah. You can say your name or you don't have to. You can be anonymous. Totally yeah. up to you. Um, the number is 646-450-6902. Or you can record yourself on your phone mm-hmm. and you can um, email us at murphybrownpod at gmail.com. Thank you. <laughs> uh, we would also love it if you would go on iTunes mm-hmm. and write us a review. Please do, because the and not just for our own self gratification, reviews and and ratings on iTunes bumps us up so that more people can find the podcast. And we hope that you are watching Murphy Brown on Antenna TV. We hope so, because they're it's there, it's playing right at, now, at almost every day. Go, go watch Murphy. Yeah. And go if you, find Murphy. If you miss two episodes during the week, Monday through Friday, mm-hmm. they're going to repeat two episodes from the week on Saturday and Sunday. So you can get Murphy every day now. You can. What re- are you doing? You can record it and then watch it and then listen to our episodes. Be young Lauren Milberger. Record it and then recite it along with it. Only you know have friends. You don't need it. Murphy's right. your friend. That's true. And And we'll see you in one week. For another edition of FYI. The Murphy Brown Podcast. And I'll take my birth control. Oh, my alarm didn't go off.